0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for drawing us here. We thank you that we have this place that you provided it for us. You've always given to us and watched over this this congregation, and and uh, we praise you and thank you. And as you've drawn us here this night, uh, we pray for an open heart to hear what the Spirit has to say for each and every one with one of us that we can hear what you have for us in your word, Lord, that we would all open our hearts to hear and just to be open and say, what do you want? What is it that you want to do in me and through me? And I pray, Lord, we, we continue to pray for our island. We pray for the people. We pray for uh, upcountry, for Lahaina, Lord, all that is going on. Um, firefighters still out there, many people helping out, helping hands. We pray for them, Lord, that you would bless them, that you would just use them in the situation that they're in, Lord, that you would be there, that your presence would be felt. And we thank you that we have this privilege that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords would hear our prayers. And we just lift it up to you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was uh, going through and um, trying to look up information for my study, uh, I came across this, and, and for all you old folks, I, I, don't, I don't know, Jenny, you're a little young for this one, but I came across this nursery rhyme. <laughs> you guys ever remember Humpty Dumpty from Mother Goose? <laughs> and it went, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. Kind of an interesting little uh, nursery rhyme, right, for young kids. Not quite sure what it has to do with anything <laughs> and why it was supposed to be for kids. But it, it, the reality is all that was available to the king, because Humpty Dumpty was a king, that's what it was portrayed as, couldn't put it back together for him. Couldn't get it back together. And even in midst that crisis, there's nothing that him or his people could do to put things back together. I also came across this uh, definition of a crisis. It says, crisis is a situation, expected or otherwise, which disrupts the normal flow of life and family, whether a death, divorce, job loss, move or mental emergency, everyone eventually experiences a crisis and everyone responds differently. And in a way, that's what we're all kind of dealing with today, especially here on Maui. A crisis of some sort, a crisis of of the things that have gone on. But even before that, as I was studying for this, I can tell you in my life... um, just things that were going on, and I don't know if I call them a crisis, but they challenged me. How do I put this back together again? i Humpty Dumpty, and trying to get things together. And as we go through these, we often experience these trials, and we experience that these pressures that come in our lives, and they come in different forms, and We are challenged in the way we respond, and we are challenged in the way we think and how we perceive we're supposed to respond. And so for today's study, I'd like to do a little precursor with going through some observations, three to be exact. I'm going to just call out three observations of trials that we experience in this world as we live in this world. And our first observation that I have is that trials are inevitable. Trials are going to come no matter what. Right? You can be the king, Humpty Dumpty. And he fell off the wall. Trials have come. Trials have always come whether they're good times or bad times. There's always the pressure, uh, the possibility. And the funny thing is, if you're a reader and a follower of the Bible, it's one of the biggest promises in the Bible that you will have trials. It's nothing that we tend to claim, right? And when we have those little promise books or those little promise cards, you don't see trials. That's not one that's on the hip parade, right? The Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning fiery trials, which is to try you as though some strange things are happening to you. So Peter's saying, this is going to be norm. This is the norm of our life, right? And even Jesus, as he was giving his last instructions to his disciples in John sixteen thirty three, he says, these things I have spoken to you, That in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. That's the last instruction. He's telling his his boys, right? Hey, guys, you know what? As followers of me, expect trials. Expect tribulation. Because it's coming. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's the confidence we get. Those believers in Christ. Those who follow Christ. And the Apostle Paul even said in 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live godly, live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And, and I think for most of us, we can see that, right? We, we, we've probably experienced it. It's... it's um, if you 've spent any time in our church, you know we've uh, Pastor Rick has talked about, hey, the devil is against us now, right we 've jumped over to the other team, so persecution's going to come. You should expect that if if your thought is that you know things will be simple, things will be all nice because now I know christ i 'm going to start cruising. That's why I'm bringing it up. That's why I'm saying this right now. That is a false theology, and that's a false way of thinking. And you'll end up disappointed, maybe even disappointed in God, because you're saying, it's not working out the way I want it to. So now as we see these claims that that this is coming, trials are going to come, Just to think about it is to set your mind in the correct way of thinking. Trials are inevitable. The second observation is that trials tend to make us or break us. So in bad times and good times, right, the bad times tend to cause us to make a decision in our lives. It causes us to make a choice. They often either make people stronger Right, or they cause people to break down. We, we read of stories, or you probably have seen or read stories, of, of like a Helen Keller, blindness and, and mute. Right, uh, Winston Churchill stuttered, didn't want to be standing up here, kind of like me, don't want to be standing up here. Abe Lincoln failed so many times and became one of our greatest presidents. So it's the choices that we make. It it tends to do something, right? And and this trial has great impact in whether you are a Christian or not. It it challenges everybody, right? It's not just the Christians who shine through. But that's who we know mostly about. You know, it's those who were in a concentration camp, like Cory Timboon, Or that who seemed to have received a raw deal, like Johnny Erickson Tata, 17 years old, broke her neck, quadriplegic, but has done so much in the name of the Lord. These things often seem really unfair for someone like that, someone so young. And they come upon them, right? And yet we can find others who didn't respond so well. That couple, that, that wife or, or that uh, husband who got divorced, say, 30 years ago, but is still carrying on on this wasn't right, this wasn't fair. They are the one who did this, and they live in bitterness. They live with this sense of, of angst of, why didn't, life isn't fair. And they continue that. And they're probably some of the people you probably don't want to sit by. Or have these relationships with too much. Because it's just like, wow, I, I can't deal with this all the time. Please, move on. But trials are inevitable, Right? That's the first thing we learn. So second, we see that trials will either make you or break you. And it's often, you know, we get these depictions, especially in the Chinese culture. They they have uh, kind of the yin and yang, those type of depictions that, that are there. And this is one of their thoughts that they put out in the pictograph. And it's put together for the word crisis. And there's two caricatures, and in that, there's tragedy and there's opportunity. It's a matter of how you want to see it, what you're going to choose to do, and how you're going to move forward. See, when there's a crisis in them, for them, they're saying, it's either you pick one or the other. It's your response, right? It's that opportunity of choice that you have, and everyone has it. You can choose. Trials are inevitable. Trials are either going to make us or break us. And third, what we're going to see is victims who fail to move beyond asking why and remain stuck in their pain. Those who just continue to ask the question why, They're these victims of the situation, of the trial, of the crisis. And you've probably seen them or heard them. It's every time you meet them, they always come back to that same situation. You know, something happened to them. This was unfair. My boss did this. It wasn't fair. So-and-so got the job because they get favorites. And then a year later, you run into them. Oh, yeah, I'm still at the same job. It's still not fair. So-and-so is moving up the ladder. I'm still bitter. I'm still this victim of the situation. And in, in some cases, it might even be true. It might even be right, right? It might be, they got the short end of the stick. But they're sticking to this whole victim mentality, right? And they never get beyond why. Why me? Why, why did this happen? Why did I marry this person? Why did they get this job? Why did I get cancer? Why did that guy got in that car while he was drunk and pulled left the center and took out my child. There are many things that are happening that we sit there and and they say, and you can sit there and say, why? Why this? Why that? Why this? And intellectually, we all have to, to deal with that why to begin with. We all have to emotionally deal with why. But the question I have for you today is, or tonight is when are you going to move beyond the why? When are you going to move to the point where you start, instead of asking why, why this, why that, start asking what? What are you trying to work in my life, Lord? What is, I get that this happened to you, but what is it that you are trying to do? Where are you trying to grow me? What can I learn from this? How can I be more like Jesus Christ through this situation, through what I see and what I do and what I go through? How can I be a light? How can I be salt to this world? Because it's through those times of trials that we get to shine the brightest, that we get the opportunity to look very different than the way the world does. We need to choose to not be stuck in our why, but to move on. Because to be stuck in your why is going to lead to death it's going to lead to death so these are the three reasons why i want you to start thinking and 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 as we go through this study that it's in your mind that you think you have to move beyond the why right there's there in in that believing that or understanding that and growing past it you know um often we're challenged by the idea of it. And, and so here, here would be three reasons why, when you need to move, it doesn't help us to stay in the why, but to move to what? Theologically, the reason why asking why or why, because in the end, it's fruitless, it doesn't produce anything, it doesn't get you anywhere. There are some things that happen in this side of heaven that we may never understand that is part of a greater plan of our God. And we often want to know. And and I think we're very much of, of this community now of this instant gratification. I need to know, so you need to tell me. And what we're really doing is challenging God to say, God, you need to show me. You need to show me this. You need to tell me this. And God, creator of heaven and earth, creator of all things, we are challenging him and telling him, what do you need to do for me, for my satisfaction? Emotionally, What we find is some people asking that why, why, why is because they carry around this guilt that is unfounded, right? That it was my fault. We've all heard of, of that survivor guilt. We've all had those people who are angry and they never resolve that anger, right? They never get beyond because, I don't know, maybe because they just like to be angry, and they think that produces something for them. But it just wells up in them. And it eats at them. And it, and again, as the first one, it doesn't produce anything. They have this question of where there really is no answer. And they keep rehearsing that over and over and over again. And I can tell you, I, I've done that. I, I've done that whole thing of of walking down that road of hey, if this would happen or if this would have been the way it would have, it would have turned out better. It would have turned out better because I would have got what I wanted. But we go back to who is in charge. Is it God or is it you? So finally, pragmatically, The reason to stop asking why is that in the end, it doesn't do any good. It might satisfy you for a time to ask why. But in the end, asking why does not produce anything. It does not help you step forward. It does not help you grow. It keeps you boxed in because mentally you can't get past to this, this whole thought. And I want to suggest to you that the key to moving through these crises that ask that you really need to ask these pivotal questions. And that question that I would say to ask, instead of asking the question why, is what do you, God, want me to learn? Or what do you want me to do? Or what do you want to do through me to touch another life? That our focus changes from us, why me, why, to God, what do you want to do? What is it that you've brought me through to this point because you want to do something in me and through me. Did you ever wonder, right, that God, if you asked him and, and said, Why am I going through this? Why am I going through this trial? Uh, why is my daughter, why is my son acting the way they do? Why, why do my grandkids treat me this way? Instead of the why question, can we come to the point of saying, Dear God, what is it that you want me to learn through this? Dear God, why is my child like this that I can grow and help them grow? Dear God, why is my spouse, my wife, my husband like this? This is so hard. That we come to him believing that he is able. Believing that he is God. Believing that he wants to draw something out of us to grow us. That once we get past our emotional grieving and move past the pain of why, that we start asking the question of what? What is it that you want, God? God, what is it that you would like me to say? What is it that you want to grow within me to use to touch another life? What is the purpose of this crisis that's in my life that I can support another person? That I can be your hands, your feet, your eyes, your heart to someone maybe who's very similar and walking through the same path and asking why and stuck in my why instead of moving on to how can I be used by God? How can I fulfill your purpose, God? What is it that you want me to do? Came across this this quote that said, though why will often elude us, what next gives us something concrete to work with? What next? What do you want? Instead of the why of unknown. The why of, I don't really have control over that answer. And I, I believe God the Father is isn't up there saying, Oh shoot, I missed that. I was supposed to tell you why, but... Um, or that situation really wasn't supposed to happen. I believe the God of this world because of what we know and what he's told us, that there aren't any surprises in in his economy, in who he is and what he knows, in his all-knowing, all-present, always there. Right? That God's word tells us that he knows everything, that he's all-wise, that he loves us, that he wants the best for us. And that means that he wants to bring about the best possible ends for the most possible people by the best possible means for the longest possible time. So if there was a a gentler, kinder, easier way, a more righteous way to do something in me and through me, that God, you would want to do it And you would change this circumstance to be something different. To be a circumstance that is more in line with who you are. You have sovereignly decreed, right? Either decreed this circumstance that I am in, this crisis, this trial... Or you have allowed it to happen in my life. And are we okay with that? Are we to the point in our understanding of who God is. And I even use this term. I call him Lord. And understand what that truly means. It means a submission to him. That when we call him Lord. That. What he has placed us on, the path that we are walking on, as we follow him and do what we, he's called us to do the best of our ability, we got to believe we are on the best path. That the God of this universe has designed it before the beginning of time, before you were born. And this is the path you're supposed to be on. And that you grow in that understanding. So as we go through this and we go through circumstances and we see that we are the object of his love, the object of his eye, the apple of his eye, he doesn't just leave us out there. And actually, this is where we're going to actually get into (laughs) our verses and our study for tonight. And what I titled it is moving from why to what? And we're going to be in James chapter one. And we're going to just cover the first four chapters. So James chapter 1. So it starts out in James chapter 1 verse 1. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. So there is this group of people who are in crisis. They are what James describes here as the 12 tribes, right? So when the church was first started, it was mainly made up of Jews, of Jewish people, of Jewish descent. And they were very, right, ritualistically, they were in their tribes and that's what they were known by. But in, as, as we go on in, in time, these tribes or these Christians were dispersed. And, The writer of this, he says, his name is James. And James is actually the half-brother of Jesus. And if we go back through some of the Gospels and Acts, it will describe and it will talk about James. And actually, after the resurrection of Christ, he went and visited James. So James becomes a leader. And the interesting thing about James and his Jesus's Step family is—they never believed him that he was the Messiah, that he was who he said he was, until after the resurrection. Until after they saw the evidence of who he was. Prior to that, they they mocked him. Hey, go go out there to show yourself off, so people can see. But we have him now, James, the half brother. And the interesting thing too is, as he wrote this book, this book is one of, considered um, the first book written of the New Testament. It was written about 1946. I mean, 1946. Wow, that's pretty recent. Uh, 46 AD to 49 AD, written around that time. And um, it, it it is him who comes out and and we find him as a leader um, in the church itself and in in Jerusalem. And they refer to him um, several times. And then in Acts chapter 8, it is talked about this great, the great um, persecution that caused the Jews to leave, to go out, to be pushed out. And you got to remember, what is their crisis at this time? This, their crisis is that They've been kicked out of the synagogue, the only thing they really knew, and they they prized, right? They've been kicked out of their family because their family has disowned them because any Jewish family would not have a non-believing son or daughter or relative. And they're losing their jobs. They're kicked out of their house. They have no place. And there's persecution coming, right? The Pauls of the world coming after them. And so you have that, you have the Roman government coming after them. And so they have dispersed and they have gone out. And as you, you see this, I just give you this background that you understand, as much as we think things are are out of control today, think about how it was for them. Everything they knew is gone. Very much like Lahaina, everything they had is gone. Their association, people are dying. It's gone, right? And they come, and and the leader we have is um, James, and he writes them this this letter, and and. It's interesting what this letter has to say to them, right? Again, they're in struggling, they have no finances, they they're they're being persecuted. And they come and they get this letter from from James and it's a letter that it wasn't specifically, you know, how we seem to the church of this this was to everybody, so it was a general letter to Try to encourage them in their situation. And it goes on and says in verse 2, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall or encounter or meet various, into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I like the way the NLT has put this. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, when trouble of, troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing Nothing. And I just like the way the wording here is, is it it has touched me of, of saying, okay, I'm going through something. This is an opportunity for me to consider what great joy that I can see through it, that God can receive from it. Right? And these are supposed to be Interesting, right? Uh, a, A tough time for these folks. And you would think James would be a little bit more sympathetic, right? And he comes out with this, basically not a whole lot of sympathy, but a challenge to them. A challenge to them to grow, to grow in maturity. And really, that's what the book of James has a lot to say, is to grow in maturity. Grow in your understanding. Grow Because in that growth, you will then see how big, how loving, how important you are to this God that you follow. To Jesus that you call Messiah and that you've chosen to have this way of life. And then, and as we see it, we we see that that you may know right that that you would have this knowledge and and this is this knowledge not just of of I read something about it. it it's a knowledge of I've experienced this, and through that experience, I've gained knowledge of the situation and how I can act, how I can grow, how I can move from why. To what does God want to do? And as we see in there, it produces, right, in the end, the patience, this steadfastness, this endurance. And, and it, it's an interesting thing as you see it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall. Count it is a command, it's not a suggestion. Maybe check it out. You know, it's saying this is what you guys need to do. In fact, there's, there's a couple commands in here. Uh, it says in verse 4, but let patience. It's telling you right now, let patience grow in you and work in you. We see these commands, and, and James is trying to encourage them in the way to grow in maturity of who they are in following Christ. So as we look through, we're going to look through verses 2, 3, and 4, mainly, and um, there's going to be three key questions that these survivors, these spiritual conquerors, really need to ask, and the same thing for us, to move us from why To what? To quit staying in that why, why me, why this, to what is it that you want to do? And I put it in this form of a question because I don't want you guys to just listen to this and go, okay, that's a neat little thing and it's breaking down. But in the situation that you are in today, because we all go through trials, we all go through something in our lives, is to ask these questions And apply them to that situation. To make it practical. To make it real. So, where am I? Sorry. So, as we go, we're going to start with our first question. Which is going to come out of verse 2. And it starts with the word count, right? Verse 2, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall encounter or meet into various trials. And the word, like I said, count. And that question I want you to think about in this verse is, what is it that I can control when my my world is falling apart? What can I control? What is it that I can see? Because there's pressures coming from everywhere else. What can I do? And the answer really is, you can control your attitude. You have a choice of your attitude. You can have a joyful attitude. So we see this word count as, as to take in consideration, to evaluate. It's kind of an accounting term. You know, to read through, to, to consider it all. To, to calculate what you're doing. It's not about the emotion. It's not about, oh, this doesn't make me feel good. This, th- I'm going to do this because it's pleasing to myself. It doesn't say we get to feel joy. right? It says count it all joy. So consider everything. Look at it. Viktor Frankl was a prisoner in the Nazi... Um, Nazi war camp said of our um, attitude, Everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstance, to choose one's own way. To choose your attitude of how you're going to see this. And this is a guy who was in a concentration camp. A Nazi concentration camp. And he came to the conclusion, to survive, I need to check my attitude. Because I can't stick here and say, why am I here? What is happening? What, what, what is that? It's, what's my attitude? You can't control the way other people think. You can't control what other people do. What your boss does. What the weather does. But you can control your attitude and your choices that you make, how you see it, how you grow in it. And what I believe is based on what you know of Christ, what you know the Bible has to say for us as Christians, as believers, shapes our attitude and shapes the way we respond Because we stop looking at what the world says or how we should be or how we should respond. And we consider what the Bible is telling us. And the Bible in this part is telling us, count it all joy. Count it as a great opportunity to know joy. And it's not the joy of the world. It's the joy of your relationship with God. It's that relational joy that you get when you do what is pleasing to him. And you grow in that. It's that spiritual maturity, right? All other things I have no control over. My attitude, I have 100% control. Warren Wiersbe says, Outlook determines outcome. And attitude determines determines action. How we're going to act, how we're going to respond, is going to be a lot from our attitude. You have a choice. You can choose to be the victim in the circumstance or you can choose to believe that you are the child of the Most High God. That He has a plan for you and I'm on the best path. And the, the verse goes on to say, count it all joy, when? And I think that's uh, one of those ones that, as a promise, you guys should underline. Because what it is telling us, it's not will tribulations or trials happen. It's promising you <laughs> it will happen. It's just when. Okay? Okay. And, and I just do that kind of jokingly, but it is true, it's coming. And we have to be aware of that, right? The believer who expects his, his Christian life to be easy, you know, uh, you promised me a, a, a rose garden, it, it, it's going to be a shock for them as they grow in the Lord. But I think that's maturity that you grow through. And that's what trials bring to us. In John sixteen thirty three it says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Acts fourteen, twenty two. Strengthen the soul of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. In 1 Peter 4, 4.12, it says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trials which you will, which is to try you as though something strange is happening to you. And last one, 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. We will have tribulation. We will have trials. It's promised to us when they're coming. And we all have had it. Because God, through James, is talking to the scattered people, not the sheltered people. We are not sheltered. He wants us to grow. He he wants us to experience n- not just one trial, but various trials. Trials that have encompassed us. Trials that, that come from directions that we might not expect, that we are not in control of. But again, we go back to what are we in control of? Our attitude. So what James is saying, that number one, you have to ask, what can I control when this world is falling apart? My attitude, count it all joy. And you can see that in, in Job, in David, in Asaph, all these guys that were near to God, even though they asked why, right? Why is this happening? Why What's the deal with Saul? What's Job You know, wiped out everything. It wasn't just, oh, this is great. He came. And even Asaph, I think that's one of the great, great Psalms that you can read. He's just like, why is this happening? Where, why does the, 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 the the what? (laughs) The wicked, (laughs) I can't even think. Why does the wicked prosper? But then he comes back to, but God, right? So it is the God who is near the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed. That is our God. So the second question that we go on to is first, I mean, um, first one is what can I control my attitude? The second question is what must I do to make it through today? And the answer is, According to our verse, is patience or endure, depending on your, your version, right? God says, Count it all joy, a choice. And then in verse 3, it says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance. So we are to develop patience. We are to develop or to, to endure. We're to hang in there, to, to not give up, not give in, not quit. Stop feeling sorry for ourselves and asking why. Knowing by personal, right? Knowing, it starts verse 3. It says, knowing that the testing of our faith will produce this. We know the end. The end is endurance. The end is patience. But to get there, we know that we got to go through these tests. And we know by these personal experience that our faith grows through experience. Which is, again, so countercultural to, to, than today. Today society is instant. Get it fixed. Get it running. Give me an answer. I can, go to, I, I can go on the web. I can find it someplace. WebMD. I can be my own doctor. There's this whole idea of I need it now. But what God is trying to do is to grow us through these tests. To grow us through these trials that we know more of him. We experience more of him. And when we endure through, tif- through these difficult times. This power starts to grow within our lives. Because this testing just like you know for, for all of us have, have worked out some. You know some maybe more than others. But when you lift weights, it's a matter of enduring the different pains that you got to go through to get more weight, to to lift more weight. If you run to run faster, to run further, you have to endure some pain along the way. You have to endure going through a portion where it tears down in order to build back up. I mean, that's how muscles are built, right? Right? And and really what it's talking about in, in the in the Greek it's it's the word hupomeno, which is hoopo means to be under and meno is to be under immense pressure. So it's through immense pressure that we develop, that we grow. You know, I read this that you know Steph Curry for him, what we consider probably one of the best basketball players today i not going to say of all time, but today, right, they talk about him training. He trains six hours every day. He, his workout includes 500 shots, practicing his trigger, lifting weights, and doing neurocognitive training for six hours every day. You don't become that good by just showing up and asking why, but you say, what do I need to do? What is it that you want me to grow? How do, I, how do I become better? You make this choice. It's not about this feeling. Oh, if it feels good, I'll do that. Or if it feels easy, I'll do that. But we believe that God has put us on a road. God is putting us through this. He says he'll never leave us nor forsake us. The trial may be, do you believe that? Do you believe that he says that he's going to be with you as you go through your trial? Do you believe that all of this stuff he's understanding and knows, but there's a bigger picture that we don't necessarily get? And that I'm going to believe by faith that he wants to do a better and greater thing than I can see. Than I can feel. And so we endure. We grow in patience. And our third question I want you guys to to consider is. What hope do I have for tomorrow? And the answer that we have for this third question is. God will take the worst and use it for my best. Which is verse 4. It says. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Our hope, and when I use that term hope, biblical hope is an assurance that something is going to take place, that God said it and it's going to happen. Our hope is not a blind hope of maybe. Our hope is that's going to happen. And my hope is in God will take the worst that I'm experiencing and he'll use it for the best. Right? He tells us, but let patience have, let patience do this work. And it's going to do this perfect work. God cannot build our character without our cooperation. We have to choose to want it. We have to choose to, to submit. If we resist him, That's tending to be his love chasing us back to he wants us to grow. He wants us to get closer. He wants us to be more like Christ. He wants our relationship to be that number one thing in your life. So we submit to him and then he accomplishes his work. And what is his work? It's a perfect work. And and really, what this perfect work is, it, it it's growing you to maturity. It's growing like a child who goes from a young, un- immature, making poor decisions to maturity. Right, that's the job of the parent to train our children to maturity. It is also referring to a ripen to be fully grown. Right, it, it's, it's the picture of God, in God's mind, this apple or this fruit, that it is exactly the way he wants it. It's exactly fresh and, and just ripe. And that's what really what this word is, this perfect work. He's got this picture for you, and he wants you to be through your personality, through your circumstance, through your background. Reflect the image of Jesus Christ. That's really what he wants for you. Not because it makes him feel good. Because that's what's best for you. And in that, I challenge you. And it's a ch- been a challenge for myself. How do we grow in the understanding of what pleases God. That we change our mindset to not what pleases us, not by doing an action, but what pleases God. It may be doing an action. It may be reading. It may be prayer. It may be this. But what pleases God is this relationship he wants with us, what he wants us to be. To be more like God, I mean, to be more like Christ, right? That the good work will be complete, lacking nothing. God is not into doing halfway jobs, He wants you to be this perfect and complete, a finished product that is mature. That is the goal. Because he's willing to take that piece of spiritual coal, compress it, that pressure, that mento, under pressure, that you develop this endurance, that you go through things little by little to produce that sparkling diamond, that spiritually sparkling diamond. That's what he wants it's very much Romans 8:28 and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren so those are the three questions i have want you guys to really be thinking about The three questions, what can I control? My attitude. How can I make it through the day? Endurance, patience. What hope do I have for tomorrow? God will take the worst, what I feel is the worst, and use it for my good. He wants you to move from that why to asking what does he want me to do. That I can be more like him. And we can see it in the Old Testament. Look at the life of David. The life of Daniel. Look at Joseph. Taking some things that were the worst. And making them. We also see it in the the life of Peter and Paul. And Jesus. Taking some very trying situations. For the purpose of good. We can also see in biographies of history in time. So we need to grow. And I think that is the the message from James. Is that he wants us to grow from immaturity to maturity. To grow from why to what. And I just want to close by reading this once again. Verse 2 through 4. And I'm going to read it in NLT. Dear brothers and sisters... When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. And that's what God wants for us. That's where he wants us to stand. So I, I challenge you to take these three questions and ask yourself as you go through your trials, where are you? And how can I apply this in my situation? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for being with us, for changing our heart, for always being there. You never leave us nor forsake us. You are always present in our lives, no matter what it is. You've been with us from the beginning of time, and you have it all mapped out even before we were born. And we are going to trust in that. We are going to mature in that thought and have faith in you that you are doing a greater and mighty work in us. I thank you for the book of James. I thank you for the challenge of moving us from not wallowing in our why, but moving and maturing in our what. I just thank you for this night, Lord, and being with us here. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.